what I wanted to talk about today was um, how we experience our lives, our experience in terms of freedom or not, seen through these very well-known, but theoretically well-known, um, eight vicissitudes. The eight vicissitudes, often known as the worldly winds, or also known as the um, winds of change, and in Zen known as 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Though we all know about these in theory. So I don't need to explain them in great detail, but I will just elucidate them a little bit so we can become refreshed about how they work for us. <coughs> because this, this, this is so not about theory. And we know the theory just fine. Any one of us who've read anything or heard anything and practiced for a while, we know the words. Of course, the point of all this is to see, is this actually true for us? Where does this work? And these, because they happen all the time to us, um, are a really useful way to see, am I being affected by this or am I not? Am I caught here or am I free here? So these are the eight, the four pairs, pleasure and pain, loss and gain, praise and blame, and fame and disrepute. Really, um, the, very, the first two, uh, pleasant and unpleasant, um, pain and pleasure, cover everything. They, all the others are sort of subsumed unto them. That's kind of like the umbrella. Uh, everything we experience is either neutral and fine or it's one or the other. So we know that so well, I don't need to even go any further. But of course, this is relevant to physical reality, emotional reality, mental reality in all kinds of ways, environmental reality and so on and so forth. <coughs> the second two, um, gain and loss. When we gain something that we like, we are happy. And when we lose it, we're not so happy. When we lose what we don't like, we're really happy. And when we lose, um, well, whatever the fourth one is, it affects us <laughs> in, a, in a like manner. So. Um, the thing about gaining and losing, the obvious thing is when things come our way. And the thing to, to tune into, I think, and the most obvious is material possessions because we're in such a consumer society. And our reality is so based on the accumulation of things, the shopping mind, you know, and have to go and get something. I don't know if it's still there, but there was a dress shop in Vancouver on Broadway um, and it was called Have to Have. <laughs> But the compulsion, the belief that this acquirement will actually do something, make me feel okay. It's about how much we invest our happiness in the accumulation or the, the uh, avoidance of the unpleasant things. Of course, this isn't just things. And for all of us, we know when we can, we, you know, we have a raise, we get more stuff. We, if it's a dramatic raise or some large improvement in our economic condition, we'll move house to another area, we'll buy different vehicles. There's so much tied up with this. We know all this. I'm not going to go into great depth, but keep checking what of this relates to you yourself. <clears throat> and of course, there are things like skills, you know, accomplishments that we gain, abilities that we gain, points of view that we gain, and then that we lose. 
we lose abilities sometimes we become disabled sometimes we lose faculties sometimes we lose hearing and our sight goes fuzzy when we get middle-aged and things but we it's not just we choose to go and get it or get rid of it when we start looking closely we see that this coming and going of things things experiences abilities first of all is happening all the time but second of all isn't happening according to our agenda this is where we need to really start paying attention we didn't want to get older we didn't want to I didn't want my eyes to suddenly need glasses every time I go around the house I have to pick up another pair of glasses to read anything fine print these things are occurring endlessly without our control we know this we gain um, you know health and lose it and uh, we gain hobbies and interests so we lose them we get bored with things we change we gain friends we get friends when we have a different hobby we lose those friends when we have a different hobby and we get other ones it's all the time coming and going there's a statement I don't know where it's from but at death finally at the end of our lives every single thing we've gained is dispersed I don't know if any of you you know in your lives or relatively recently been sorting through somebody's stuff who's died all of that stuff that they were attached to that they probably worked hard to gain and sometimes there are awards and you know gifts and things they're meaningless when that person's no longer there they go off to thrift stores or they get shared out in friends and neighbors and rallies and what seemed to be so important for that one person is they're just things you know later it's all endlessly this coming and going we get so we, we forget these things of course praise and blame and fame and disrepute these two really are very close together of course one of them is like the personal in your face well done you know or that wasn't so smart and the other is behind your back often and more public you know it's more the what you read about yourself and you didn't know they thought that and so on but they're otherwise they're just simply our status in society which is hugely important we're social beings of course as many of the animals are and so how we can work out our social relationships is is relatively vital as a survival tactic but we're surviving very well indeed thank you and we've taken these to extremes well all of this we've taken to extremes but certainly the social the prestige element in thinking about this talk you know I was thinking about when I came to Canada from England I grew up in England the first 20 years and then I moved to Canada the west coast and probably the most important pleasure of moving to the west coast and staying there was um, there wasn't anything like the social pressure like I could make friends with whom I liked and I could do whatever I liked to earn a living and I could wear what I liked and like the music I liked whereas I had grown up in the middle classes of England where everything was about what the neighbors thought of you you know the whole the, you know that the, one of the commonest words was proper that my mother used I hate that word as a result but it's like this judgment of what you do in terms of the social you know respectability on all of that and that whole piece of our experience goes right across the board you know this is social this is racial this is definitely class this is national <coughs> generational all kinds we we are so affected fashion for goodness sake you know appearances all all the show so of course these these start to um, overlap these things they're not separate praise and blame and loss and gain and pleasure and pain you know when we gain some money then we 
go up in status and then our happiness is because we then start wearing fancy clothes if, for instance all of the opposite where it's all tied in with these losses and gains but it's an enormous area of pressure this social pressure prestige appearances Sally Clough was talking about this topic one time and she was uh, she mentioned this town in Tuscany she must have just been to Tuscany there's one of the towns in Tuscany I don't know if any of you've been there but you have called San Gimiano anybody been there they have these towers and the points of these ta- they're just buildings that are not even used or anything they're just built high towers and uh, there was a period about 350 400 years ago where when anybody had any money they would build a tall tower and then when the next person owned a bit more they would build a taller tower and a taller there's 18 of these towers left standing they're really tall towers it's like you see these photographs of Tuscany these weird it was all just totally for approval you know just to prove we were something how much does this apply to us does it really matter what we wear and what we, we, we it does you know we are invested to some degree in all of this being acceptable how far have we carried this have we carried this further than we need I would say yes <laughs> we need approval of course we learn this by the age of about two or three we you know we do the behaviors we do in our family to be approved of to to have some recognition so it's it's an old habit but the thing about this Dharma practice is that really the point of it is to be inquiring into this moment when I'm behaving this way what's fueling this what's going on for me right now why am I doing what I'm doing am I seeking approval am I trying to look good I mean we bring us into meditation we have matching zafus I have my my cushions match for instance <laughs> that's not because it feels any better you know well people sit really you know up at the front at retreats or you know look walk really slowly and everything look like they're really you know James Barras says this thing about looking good looking good <laughs> sitting on retreat keeping there late into the night just so that you can be known by the last two people that you sat the longest Have anybody done any of this <laughs> <clears throat> so we know the theory that these things are always changing they're always coming and going that they're not really in our control but we don't live as though we know this we do know the theory of course the difference between um, our, our being conscious and our being unconscious really whether we're informed in our lives by our understanding or not that's the development of wisdom and we have to start with the facts as Utejaniya says we begin with the facts the information the data you know we begin to read and talk and learn and think about these things but with time they become incorporated in us and uh, as they become incorporated in us these understandings these realizations they inform how we behave so that's where we're working all the time is taking the information and keeping being aware of it so that it in, imbues us so that it infiltrates it settles down into us and, and then guides how we are it's very hard work to do it in a mental way initially theoretically oh I should not do this but as we keep looking and keep looking it begins to more and more inform how we are that's why we have to keep practicing and what we're practicing really is looking what's going on right now what's happening right now why am I doing what I'm doing I've written a few things here I remember my mom came to visit me when I first left England I'd been in Canada maybe a year or something I'd never before, it wasn't proper in England in those in the 50s and the 60s to own jeans. 
so I now had jeans. So she came out to see me and everyone she saw was wearing jeans. And she says, what's this thing about jeans? You know, like, why do you all have to wear jeans? Her mind, jeans were in those days. They were workmen's, you know, tough clothing to keep your other clothing from getting ruined by your physical work. She couldn't believe that we were all, why, you know, you all wear the same looking thing. <coughs> so when we aren't conscious that, we, that these um, gains and losses and pleasures and pains are running us, when we don't realize that when something is pleasant, we've got to have it, have to have it, and if it's unpleasant or difficult, we are, are trying to avoid it. When we don't realize this, it is running us. This is what happens. We're trying to be in charge of ourselves and have choice rather than have the pleasure and the displeasure be the thing that's choosing what we do, right? So as long as we're not conscious of whether we're doing something appropriate or not appropriate, conscious or unconscious, we're being led around up and down, happy and sad, by these changing winds of change. When I was a little girl, I lived in a thatched cottage in the rolling green hills of Dorset. It sounds very picturesque. It was actually very picturesque. And right beside our garden, there was a field. All around our garden, there was a field. It was our field. And uh, the farmer who lived next door would rent our field for his cattle. And he had 26 Jersey Guernsey cows and a bull, a Jersey bull. I don't know if any of you care about farming or anything, but Jersey cows are little and very cute and very friendly. And Jersey bulls are huge and massive and extremely aggressive. And he would keep the bull with a rig in its nose on a chain in the field. And when you're a child, when I was a child growing up in England, in the country, we would run around in the fields or in the woods all the time. It's what our life was, playing. But you were always scared that you'd jump into a field, climb over a fence, go through a gate, which had a bull in it. So we were always high alert for bulls, because some of these bulls would get off their chains and chase you, and they were really scary. And we had this big bull next door. And um, I would often sit on the fence between our garden and, you know, and watch this bull and see if I dared go into the field, even though he was on a chain. I think of these vicissitudes as like these rings in the nose of the bull. He, the farmer, not a very big man, could take this bull by this chain, by this ring, disconnect the chain. He'd have to hold it. He had a strong arm. He'd hold it high. And he could lead this, very docilely, lead this huge animal around and stick it in a pen or move it to another field because of this ring in its nose, because it was so tender in the nose. It was just amazing to me to see that. But the, the power of that ring in that nose over this enormous creature is just like what happens with our winds of change with us. If we're not conscious, we're being led around by this ring in our nose all the time. Meaning that we believe our happiness or our unhappiness is completely tied into whether it's good or whether it's not good whether we're praised or whether we're not. We're praised, we feel great. We're criticized, we feel really bummed out. Somebody yells at us and has an argument with us and says, how could you do that? We feel awful. <coughs> this is normal to a certain degree, but how much do we believe that that's our reality? How much do we identify with what other people are telling us, for instance, or our new possession? How inflated do we get when we have a new something or other, or when something breaks? How bummed out do we get, really? This is all the time, in, any, in all of our lives, all the time. How affected are we? How much are we pinning our happiness hopes on these changing things? We're doing it lots. It's why we aren't free. That's why we are so stressed out, why there's such an enormous 
amount of medication needed, why we have to consume so much stuff, why war happens, all of it, everything. So one of the ways to help us with this is to remember, which again we know, but to remember that these things are always changing. And we know they're changing. But when we're in the midst of something awful, can we remember that it's going to change and it isn't as that big? It seems so big at the time. We can remember it's just going to pass through like weather. I thought of this weather patterns, but I guess I've lived in a place where the weather is always changing. I don't know if the weather changes here very much. <laughs> the last four days I've woken up, it's been exactly the same. <laughs> I don't know if this is a useful metaphor for you, but it's very useful when you live a little further north. It's always changing weather. <laughs> Anicca. Another thing that really is useful to keep remembering through everything is this um, liberating insight that we get in our own way, in our own time, that we keep getting, is that everything is conditioned by everything. That things just aren't. They just aren't so. They're so because of a whole lot of something or others, which are themselves conditioned by other, you know, it's like this endless, endless conditioning thing going on. So, of course, it's unstable. Of course, it's always going to change. Of course, it's like this. How could it not be like this? There's all these thousands of factors creating this moment to be exactly like this. It can't be otherwise. I can't be otherwise. You can't be otherwise. It can't be otherwise. We forget this. We go into, I want it to be this way. I want more of this and less of that. We forget the conditioned reality. It's like, as soon as we remember and are informed by that, we won't be so attached to what we would like. I think I told you this when I was here in February. Excuse me if I did, but it's a great little story of conditioned reality where there's, um, bi- if you remember this, you'll start nodding. There was a biologist <coughs> um, who was studying the diseasing, the, the, the disease which was increasing in um, coral in the Caribbean, the lower Caribbean. And there was a pediatrician who um, was working with kids in Trinidad Port of Spain and she was finding over the last 10 years that the children in Port of Spain had more and more uh, asthma and the biologist was finding that the corals in that same area the grenadines and so on um, had more and more disease and they somehow got together and they through their research and their various scientific community were able to come up with do you remember this story anybody? oh good Um, it's more entertaining when it's new Um, that something to do with the climate was affecting the winds blowing around in the northern Indian Ocean which were now predominantly blowing from the east to the west carrying much larger than usual quantities of Sahara Desert sand westwards across the Atlantic Ocean and dumping them in that part of the Caribbean which was causing disease to the coral and causing asthma in the children it's never just asthma in the children it's, it's a whole whole we're all intertwined when we remember this we don't get so attached afraid anxious upset with these changing things because it's like well of course it's really helpful the other thing to bear in mind and this is the biggest piece of it I think is that when we look closely at these winds of change these four pairs the pleasant ones and the unpleasant ones praise and blame we really and truly behave as though there should only be four. And we believe deeply that the other four are a mistake. (laughs) And we should get over it and we should get rid of it and somehow fix it so that we can get back to the four that we think it should be, don't we? We believe this way, completely. So we think that something's wrong 
and so now to do something and usually it's the wrong stuff that really motivates us because it's unpleasant we don't like it so we do all that we can to get rid of that thing whatever that may be improve the situation so we can go back to being what we think of as how we're supposed to be this is a big fallacy it's not supposed to be for that's why the Buddha had to say these things clearly like the first noble truth he says there is actually frustration and dissatisfaction because actually we want what we're wanting is four of the eight that's the problem or not wanting the other four of the eight that's the problem <coughs> so we really need to look closely at how we think that it should only be one half of the reality when we look closely we can see that these comings and goings of all these pleasant and unpleasant experiences that are endless that are not in our control that are conditioned are absolutely bound together the experience of our being human is like being on the ocean which has waves that's what being human is being in this realm is can we really seriously expect there only to be upsides of the waves how can you have a wave if it's only got half of itself a wave is a thing that goes up and down that's what a wave is it isn't only a half a wave the wave means up and down up and down up and down this is our experience it's a wave-like experience we are completely stupid actually to think it shouldn't be down to that up could you always be going up it's we know this is silly but we don't really know it we don't live with this knowledge do we we can keep thinking of wave-like life sometimes it's this sometimes it's this inevitably it's not personal and allow that to be the way it is we know that in theory keep looking at your experience when am I attached to one half of my life here when am I what am I doing am I chasing one half of my wave am I trying to avoid coming back down again yes we do it all day long <coughs> the thing of course that's the problem is that we have learned as humans and we have taken this on completely way too far is that the things the objects of our lives the things the people the encounters the experiences even the thoughts the ideas these changing things are what matters <coughs> in actual fact they're always everything there's pleasant and unpleasant and big and little and all of it <coughs> endlessly what matters isn't the stuff that's happening what matters is how I'm responding we can't do anything about the changing phenomena it's beyond us what we can do and the only thing we can do is watch our reaction to it not it but what we do is we look at it I want this I don't want this oh how could this person do this I want more of that we're objectifying our lives completely which we need to do to, to survive to a certain degree we need to you know this is not poison we, get, we have to eat this kind of food because it's healthy for us and these people might be enemies so we won't hang out with them so we need a certain amount of you know who's attractive and a potential mate so that the species can survive but we've carried it like way 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 beyond and so we rely on these changing phenomena for our well-being and that is the problem 
they will always be going through whatever they're going through. How am I with it? We need to look to ourselves, not to the objects of our lives. And everything can become an object of our lives. We can keep looking at how am I with this? How am I with this? How am I with this? Who was here last week when uh, Utejnir was here? Some of you. Lots of you weren't either. This is Utejnir's teaching. I mean, he's... I was there in um, Burma last fall, November and December, five weeks. And then I was just at the Forest Refuge in May, where he was for the month of May. I was there for three weeks. And um, I'd never been to Burma before. I'd never sat with a, with a side all before. So that was my first, you know, horse's mouth kind of experience. Well, other than Goenka, I shouldn't say that. I sat with Goenka for the first few years. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he just keeps saying, and as he said to you who were here last week, it's not about the objects. Look at the mind. Look at the mind that's relating. I think it was Suzuki Roshi, but I'm not sure. One of the Zen patriarchs, one of the contemporary wise Zen teachers. Um, I'm about to make a quote and I've forgotten what it was. I have it though. Hmm. If you expect your life to be up and down, you'll be far more peaceful. We expect our life to be up. We need to expect our life to be up and down. We'll be far more peaceful. <clears throat> so how we bring this into every day and any moment is we, we look to see how am I responding to the circumstances rather than the circumstances we have to totally endlessly over and over keep shifting from the circumstances to how we're responding and that's so not what we do we're so caught by these things we're caught we're enchanted by the changing reality and the Buddha talked about becoming disenchanted and so the way to be disenchanted is to look at how am I responding to this thing if there's something unpleasant happen as Utejani says if there's pain in your knee and you look at the pain in your knee you're going to trigger by the pain in the knee to get upset with it and then will come a whole lot of thoughts oh my goodness I'm never going to get rid of this I won't ever dance again don't look at the pain in the knee look at your mind is your mind okay is your mind just being, oh, here I am, right, just being present. Then, with a present, calm mind, look at the pain in the knee, and it's just sensation. But we don't, we look straight at the pain in the knee, or we look straight at the beautiful new something or other, or that person. We don't watch ourselves while we're, in, we are, we're involved with our lives. So that's the practice, and that's where we can change something. We can't change the rest of it. So how am I dealing with this? One other of the contemporary, and I think it was probably also Suzuki Roshi, he'd say, enlightenment is an appropriate response. I love that. Appropriate. If we respond appropriately, it means that this knowledge has become integrated and we now have the wisdom to not be attached when nice things are happening. We like them. Doesn't we not like them? We enjoy it. We don't have to hang on. And when something unpleasant is happening, we don't have to take it personally and get all freaked out and have to strain ourselves to get rid of it. Sometimes we need to, clearly. You know, we, we don't become stupid about it, but we don't have to invest everything in this changing, winds of change. So instead of the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, which are an awful lot of them when you think of it like that, think of it like this. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows, all hyphenated, 
It's just like the ocean of change of waves. It's waviness. We're, we're waves. Our life is wave-like. Waving. Not this kind of waving, but this kind of waving. Buckminster Fuller said, I am a verb. Right? So I'm a verb that's waving. I'm a waving verb. Waving is what it is. The 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. Not the joys and the sorrows. We separate things into their individual things and then get attached or irritated with them. Don't separate them out. This is coming and going. This is what happens in life. We can then ride more gracefully these waves. It's also simple. And we know we know it, but we don't really. So we just keep looking. In this moment, in this moment, am I reacting? Oh, am I focused out there? Am I watching how I am? With kindness and with interest. That's it. Okay, I managed to keep talking, but that's enough for me to keep talking. <laughs> Thank you for listening. But I'm happy to, uh, to discuss this if anybody has any questions about what I said or your time with Utation Year last weekend or something. We have a few minutes. It's just, we have about 12 minutes. Yes, please, you. Yeah. Um, your comments put me in mind of uh, a mentor of mine that, who's been very important to me in life and also a former countryman of yours, an Englishman, by the name of Charles Hamden Turner. Don't know Charles if Turner? Hamden Turner, yeah. hyphenated. Um, he would take, a, I mean, he had nothing to do with Buddhism. He's a, a social psychologist. And he would take pairs of opposite values hmm. and uh, said that the problem is when we split them apart. So he would say that um, courage uh, without caution is recklessness. That's right. And caution without courage is cowardice. Mm-hmm. And he could do this endlessly for hours with any set of values that you had. And so it's a bit of a different way of looking at what you just said, but it really put me in mind of it, and it's been uh, a very important and buoyant uh, concept in my life, and mm-hmm. I just wanted to share that. Mm-hmm. You know what that reminds me of is um, the balancing that we do in our practice so much, and particularly, for instance, the frame of reference of the um, five spiritual faculties, which can be seen as one leading to another, to another, to another. It's one way of seeing them, but also they go in pairs, two pairs, with mindfulness being the balance. And uh, faith and wisdom are the pairs. And it's not unlike what you said, because if you have a lot of faith, but you don't have a lot of information, then it's blind faith and you can get into big trouble. If you have a lot of wisdom, but you don't have any, any courage, any conviction, any confidence, you can spend your entire time being, you know, skeptically analyzing and never actually move. So you need a certain amount of confidence to move, but not just trust with no information in exactly the same way. So a lot of the, the practice that we do is, is finding what's, imbalance because when we're too extreme in any one way sloth and torpor and agitation you know to, to one or the other where it's not appropriate yeah what's the difference between appropriate which you say is good and proper which you described as <laughs> <laughs> so uh, from my experience, proper is imposed. It's someone else's false standard that's going to be judged and you're going to be either acceptable or not acceptable on some hollow value, whereas appropriate you know, is actually what's helpful, what's going to diminish difficulty, what's, you know, 
it's going to help the world. So it's, it's, that's my experience of the word proper. But of course it's just a word. And if proper for you means appropriate, then it's a good word. <laughs> just the way it was used in my household was not appropriate. <laughs> This might be an urban legend, but it's often said that uh, a vast majority of the people who win large jackpots in the lottery um, have miserable lives. Uh, Comment on that. Very hard to to retain some sense of um, balance when you suddenly go from some state especially when our world puts such an emphasis on our social status that suddenly it's massively, you know, like we haven't learned the ropes in a way. I think that's, that's what I immediately think of. So when somebody's fortune completely switches from one to another, it's so disconcerting because we don't know actually how to function in that new arena. And so, um, I don't know how dharmic an answer that is, but... That's what I immediately think of. I think we get thrown off balance by when, when it's really dramatic. And it could be the same thing with grief or, you know, people encounter some natural disaster and stuff. It's like long-term repercussions because it changes, you know, our uh, stability so hugely. Crash. It's the only one. Zafu landed on somebody's head. Unpleasant. <laughs> you okay? Okay. When you talk about the waves and that that's normal experience and that that brought to mind for me another simile that someone's used of we are the ball that balances. It's not functioning. (laughs) That balances on the waves. So that's like one kind of metaphor for the balance. But when you told the story of the the Saharan sand was like, okay, yeah, that's a back and a forth, but, you know, I don't want that to happen. I don't want the coral to die. So where, so then I sort of was thinking about the desire to go to balance sometimes feels like um, a dulling down and a wearing, to get an evenness that mm. is not harmful. So I'm a little confused somewhat. Yes. This is actually gets always, we always get into this arena when we're talking about this stuff in the Dharma because sometimes we can think that we're not supposed to react at all, you know, like never get excited, never get bummed out and all nice and beige, you know, and and kind of boring, Um, which isn't what it's talking about. Really, the, the piece that I find the most useful in this is how much do we invest, I like that word, our well-being in these changing things. And so it's the how much we cling to it, how much we cling on and believe in it, identify with it. doesn't mean not to enjoy or not to be unhappy. Of course we're going to have grief when somebody leaves us or you know, we, our hearts break, of course. But if we get so identified that our whole reality is based on this inevitable change, then we, it's not appropriate, it's too much. So it, it comes back to how much we are really you know, invested in it, but attached to it. So we can like the things that are nice. I always think of this little story of Ajahn Chah um, where some Westerner was visiting with him and uh, people were always giving him gifts and he would just pass them on to everybody else, you know, the monastery. But he had this one mug that he really liked or glass or something, I'm not sure. And he always drank out of this one mug. 
And so this Westerner was saying to him, you know, if you're so detached and everything, and you're not attached to anything, so why, what's this about the mug? And so he said, oh, I relate to this mug. Isn't it pretty? He said, I always relate to the mug as though it's already broken. I can thoroughly enjoy it, but I'm not hanging on. So when it goes, which inevitably it will go, it'll be fine. Meantime, I can really enjoy using it because it's lovely. So it's, it's a, to do with our attachment. It's to do with our belief in it. Like, so, for instance, we do what we do because we care, but we, we have this open palm. It's not goal-oriented. It's got to work out this way because I really care that it works out this way. Because the working out is way beyond us. There's too many factors. But that doesn't stop us from doing all we can, like donating blood because we care. It isn't that we stop caring and become, you know, blimps. But if without being fixated on having to have it work out. So it's, it's uh, dangerous to be fixated on the goal. So to relax the fixation on the goal, but still to really care. That's the, that's the subtlety of it. Not to not care. So remember the teachings of um, metta with equanimity? Well, in the teachings of metta, there are the... There's the pure four meta states, kindness, compassion, um, empathetic joy, appreciative joy, and equanimity. And then there, is, there are opposites, and then there are the near enemies. The near enemies are very useful because we mostly hang out with the near enemies rather than, we don't, you know, we're not cruel, so we're not usually very that bad. But we're much closer to them, but we're often not really enlightened and pure in our love. We're often attached in our love. So the near enemy of equanimity, which is where we get mistaken, is indifference. It's like, I don't care. Real equanimity is complete caring and knowing it's way beyond me and it's, it's what all will happen. It's, equanimity is being wave-like and being with the up and the down and being okay with it all and with the heart that cares. It's not the near enemy, which is indifference, which is what we sometimes think there's always meaning, so I won't then get upset or won't get that excited. I'll just become boring. So it's kind of, it's kind of like the equanimity is a balancing ball in the midst of the waves. Yeah. How much is uh, the, the aspect of a, the individual who's looking at the cup who already knows its impermanence and so enjoys the cup because of the knowledge of impermanence and it's not attached to any particular form. But how much is that as a construct that he's laid over that reality for him to enjoy it as opposed to be able to just enjoy it? <coughs> I don't know how to answer that, excuse me. Because I don't know really what was going on in his mind at the time. I mean, he would just be using that as an example to teach through, you know, it's like when when we've any any of us experienced some moments of freedom, you know, then there aren't words, there isn't object subject reality, it's all conceptual at that point. But because we mostly live in the dual world, we use all these concepts all the time. So, I mean, really, ultimately, what the Buddha is trying to do is have us see where we keep getting lost. Look at the symptoms of our disease. <coughs> he was so practical. He didn't become idealistic and say, this is freedom. Let's look at what's hanging us up. He was like a doctor, he said. And I just think that's so useful. Let's keep looking for ourselves right now and see when 
I'm making something of something when I'm relating to something in some theoretical way and turning it into something and then believing in it which it's all just life happening here so some of us are more conceptual than others some of us are more object related some of us are more attached some of us are fear-based it doesn't actually matter but if we're not free can we see that oh that's useful okay have a lovely week. Thank you.